We'll just cover all of the things. Well, all the things that we have experience <laughs> with, at least. I want to tell you guys how long it takes to travel to the moon and what you should pack. <laughs> that was sarcasm. For, for anyone that doesn't. Heavily sarcasm. <laughs> I've never been to the moon. Um, that's wildly That'd be else. fun, though. That'd be so cool. But also, have wildly... you heard about the space hotel? That's widely outside my range of expertise. <laughs> so the space hotel is supposed to open in 2025, and I really want to go. Hi there, neighbors! Welcome back to the next town over. I'm Carson Costa, and I'm here with my co-host Nicole Bennett. Hello. Today we're talking long-term travel and how to prepare for it, and we're coming to you from Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> so I figured we'd start with what is long-term travel? Like, how do we distinguish long-term travel from short-term travel? Is it a matter of duration, matter of locations? How are we defining long-term travel? Because it can mean different things to different people. For some people, leaving for more than a weekend is, you know, something you've not done before, and it takes a lot more planning, or they have several stops in their trip, and it takes more than it would for just one week in, you know, Mississippi, for some reason. Yeah, uh, I, I think it does depend on the person. People have different answers to this question, which is why I wanted us to establish what we're calling long-term travel. I know, what distinguishes between a trip and long-term travel? Because mm-hmm. to me, I've always thought long-term travel is something where it, it kind of takes over your life for a while. And I think at three weeks, it's a long trip, but it's still a trip. Fair, although having spent, what, seven days in this hotel room at this point, um, it's starting to wear. I think having spent that much time away from a home in general would change your way of life because it's not long enough to establish brand new habits, but you do get into a new routine while you're on your trip, even if it is only a trip. But that happens, I mean, even in a weekend, your routine is going to be different than it is at home. I don't mean like changing your routine as like what is different from when you're at home. I mean like establishing a routine within your new settings. Okay, every Monday and Wednesday, Uh, I go to market because they have the best strawberries. And I've been here enough to know that that's what I do on Mondays and Wednesdays. But then are we discounting long-term travel where you're doing a large number of locations? Because if you're only in each location for a few days, then you're not going to establish that kind of routine. True. I think there should maybe be two categories. When I think of long-term travel, a lot of it to me is... You know, being able to build relationships, uh, learn a new language. Uh, it's about the, the depth of the experience, mm-hmm. I guess. And so that kind of brings it into the next point that I had was, does the intensity impact how long it needs to be in order to be like long-term travel? Mm-hmm. Because if you're doing something super immersive for a short period of time, that's going to feel very, very different than um, if you're in a very of Americanized setting for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. I do think, yeah, I really think that that, you know, definition has to vary because when I traveled across Europe for a month, you know, it felt like several months because Mm -hmm. it was very intense. I was moving every couple of days. Every aspect of my life at home was completely gone. Every aspect of my life had changed and it changed for a full month. Mm -hmm. So to me, that felt like long-term travel. It's very different than what we're doing now, which is, you know, living in a place for several weeks to a couple of months and being immersed in that country and that culture. I don't think they are necessarily different by definition. I, had, mm-hmm. I went through a lot of the same thought processes 
when I left for my month-long trip is when I was prepping for this one. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I wonder if it depends, too, on how much of your life at home changes. Because if you're... Uh, if you work with a company or if you work for yourself where you have a long-term sabbatical mm -hmm. um, and so you have a month or two where you can take a longer trip and then step right back into your life as it was because you didn't have to, um, you didn't have to move, you didn't have to give up your job, you didn't have to do any of you know, those more extensive changes. I, and, I mean, I've never had that sort of situation, so I don't know how that changes how the long-term travel feels. And again, I think that's another one of those situations where it depends on what kind of travel you're doing. Because, uh, you know, if you go to, like, I don't know, a spa retreat that's highly Americanized or something for a month, mm -hmm. that's going to feel very, very different as opposed to um, if you do an intensive immersive experience for a month during that sabbatical where nothing at home necessarily has to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we should talk about, like, how much, like, your home life is affected by it. Right. Like you and I, we packed up everything we have and put them in boxes and left them in storage mm -hmm. to one day, you know, come back to. Yeah. <laughs> for one day, we'll you know, go back home and start up our lives again. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different kinds of long-term travel. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about that, too. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to get into what exactly what we're classifying long-term travel. And I guess at the end of the day, we don't really have a specific definition. Uh, yeah. It kind of comes down to what you feel long-term travel is. And hopefully in this episode, there will be some tips and advice that can help you with whatever long-term travel experience you're looking so, at. So, next question. Does moving count as long-term travel? Or is that something else? I think that's something different. Yeah. It is definitely your experience in a new culture. And yeah. you're having to make a lot of the same adaptations. But I think completely relocating is different than undertaking a long-term travel experience. Yeah, I would agree with that. Where you have some intention of returning home or, or some sort of home base at the end of the, mm -hmm. the journey. Or even like currently you and I have different goals at the end. We're still in the, you know, travel aspect of it. So mm -hmm. I think that if you were to relocate to a new place, I don't think it counts as long-term travel because you're specifically leaving one place to go set up somewhere new. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very different experience because um, there's no end point in sight. But I still think that a lot of what we have to say here will be useful for that kind of experience as well. But it's probably something that we might want to talk about more in depth at a later date. Yes. So as far as kinds of long-term travel, there's all the sort of outdoor adventure things, mm -hmm. which we can say is like the bike tour that we're talking about in the next two episodes with our interview with Dave Earl and Nancy Peterson. So look forward to that. Outdoor adventures can also include backpacking or long-term hikes, such as the Pacific Crest Trail, as made famous by Cheryl Strayed's Wild. I'm sure some of you out there have read that. I unfortunately have not. <laughs> it's been on my to-read list, though. Same -sies. This covers a lot of other things, too. I, I know people like to sometimes sail across the oceans on, like, a small sailboat, which blows my mind. I don't understand people do that. There's a wide variety of things that you can include in the outdoor adventure uh, situation. But I think that that is definitely a unique category mm -hmm. and challenging in its own way. Yeah. For which I have no experience for. So I will simply be here to <laughs> smile and nod. <laughs> and then we have sort of a nomadic lifestyle, which is kind of what we're doing right now. Yeah. It's just relocating every once in a while. 
um, traveling kind of constantly. And I think that's what distinguishes it from moving to a new place because, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you could have the nomadic lifestyle for years on end, mm-hmm. but you're constantly changing locations yeah. instead of settling down somewhere. There's also traveling nurses. I came across a traveling nurse in Alaska. She's super cool. Uh, she traveled all over the, the States. And um, she was just coming back from doing a year in Alaska. And it sounded like a really interesting way to travel because every nine months or so, she had to relocate. Mm-hmm. It gave her the opportunity to see all sorts of different places. Uh, and there's other similar jobs to that that have you traveling frequently, traveling for long periods of time, moving you know, every year. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely another category. And then I think van life is a big one. Ta-da! <laughs> I tried that. We have our own resident expert in that one. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd call myself an expert, but I did cover up my own van and I traveled in it for several months. It's a challenging form of long-term travel in its own Mm -hmm. right. It has a lot of luxuries that some of those, like the bike tours and the hiking, backpacking, that those don't have. But at the same time, it presents more challenges as well. And if you could do like an RV, I feel like that would be the height of Mm. the outdoor type travel. Yeah. My parents um, have several friends who have sold their houses and live out of their RVs, you know, permanently now. And they keep saying like, wow, we should have done this years ago. But at the same time, I miss having a backyard. Except your backyard is wherever you want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I can't imagine like doing the van life just because there are certain amenities that like you just don't have with you that you do in an RV. And it depends on your van, too, because, like, I did not put a bathroom in mine, which that. was a bad plan. <laughs> it was a bad plan. Know, when you said that, I was like, oh, my. To be fair, at the time, I did a lot of research, and I found that the van life community was pretty split on whether you needed a bathroom or not, because there were so many public restrooms in the world, they were, you know, easy to find. But then the pandemic hit. <laughs> And so when I was traveling in my van, public restrooms were closed to the public. (laughs) And so that definitely threw a wrench in my scheme. And it might have affected how I felt about van life as a whole because Mm -hmm. it added this whole other level of challenge to it that I wasn't expecting to have to deal with. Mm -hmm. We'll never know because I sold my van. So any sort of foreign exchange program, of which I've done a couple. Rotary Youth Exchange is a great one where it's a year-long immersive exchange in high school. Uh, There's also some really great sort of educational programs that I know do longer forms of travel. Then there's university study abroad. (laughs) So I think that that's unique in that it it offers a lot more support. Mm. You know, people are paving paving the way for you. A lot of times there's housing provided or at least they guide you towards specific forms of housing. That And typically whatever you've left at home is going to be waiting for you when you come back. So diving into the tips and tricks and how-tos, first point that we've got is social interception. So for... Many people, the aspect of going out and traveling, especially long term, can be very scary. And not just scary for you, but for all of your loved ones. And if you're like me, my family is very involved, very concerned. (laughs) They always do it out of love, but sometimes they, you know, kind of scare you and say, oh, don't you dare, you know, cross the street at a red light. You might get arrested. Like, really? I don't think that they're going to arrest me for jaywalking. They're like, just don't risk it. That type of love. So there were so many levels of like prepping, prepping myself for like all of their questions about how I'm going to do this and being ready to tell them, I'm sorry you disagree, 
I'm doing this anyway. And being firm in my stance was really hard. It took me a long time to like get up that nerve. So I broke it in by telling other people first, <laughs> like my friends and my coworkers. I told yeah. a bunch of people before I told my family, which they weren't too happy about, but I felt like I had enough practice, especially because a lot of my friends had asked me a lot of the same questions my parents and my sisters did. So that helped. And then because of the time I was working two jobs, I also got to let two employers know what was going on that I plan on quitting um, months in advance. And while that's not always the best, course it was for me because of the types of jobs that i had if you do that to some places they will just fire you so yeah you know, you know use your discretion i know my dad had that experience once where um he notified an employer ahead of time that he was going to be moving and um they just said okay bye <laughs> you're fired yeah no uh and it, yeah he felt very betrayed because he was trying to do the right thing so i think it's one of those things where you have to know know the people you're working with and know the the culture of the workplace yeah. too and the type of job that you have mm -hmm. um i mean i worked for the state and i for one knew that they couldn't simply fire me if they fired me they would have no one else to do my job and it would take months to find my replacement which yeah. is why i told them so soon was mm -hmm. so that they would have time to find a replacement because it takes months to fill certain positions right uh, my other job wasn't the biggest deal to me and also I was the only one to work it so if they did fire me that would be more of a boo for them than for me yeah so know your place and where you are too like I was not replaceable yeah and knowing the job market because yeah. uh, you know again if there's a hundred people standing in line to step right into your shoes then it's probably better to wait whereas if you know the market's flush with jobs and employers can't find anyone then it's going to be a little harder for them to let you go. Yeah. But again, use your discretion. Um, I told one job months in advance. I told the other one a couple of weeks in advance. Mostly so I could start training my replacements. Mm -hmm. Something I've noticed is that... Uh, <laughs> and I didn't do this on purpose. But uh, it can be helpful to tell them you're going to do something really crazy first. <laughs> yeah. And then lessen it to something slightly less crazy. And I say that because uh, before I came up with the van life idea, I had to... She tried to kill me. <laughs> I did not. I thought it would be really, really cool to walk around the world. Because, like, what better way to really see everything and enjoy what you're looking at and have the time to yourself? And I just thought that would be a really cool way to see the world, was just to walk around it. So I told everyone I was going to walk around the world, and they all panicked. <laughs> Pretty sure I had a stroke. And then I was thinking about it and I realized, you know, if I was walking and I saw a sign that said, oh, there's this really cool museum five miles in this other direction, I wouldn't be able to go see it because that would add 10 miles onto my trip to go out and come back. And I wouldn't want to walk an extra 10 miles in one day. So I was severely limiting myself if I was going to walk. So then I decided it'd be better to just, you know, get a van and drive it. Everyone was very receptive to that idea. Yeah, we all had one big collective sigh of relief when she's like, I'm going to do a van. We're like, oh, thank God. There's oh, going to be metal God. walls involved. Right. Oh, you can lock something. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
And I mean, you're right. Definitely start big and then, you know, say, oh, just kidding. I've decided to do something smaller. I mean, and again, I didn't do it on purpose. I was genuinely thinking I was going to walk around the world and then I just thought better of it. But, you know, it can help. If you think it's going to be a hard sell, then, you know, maybe really scaring their pants off and then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, it could be a tactic. It's, it is a tactic. It is a known tactic in sales. Or you could do what I did, which was ease my family into this idea. As I stated, I've you know been on a couple of trips in the past. I did take a month um, on my own, my early twenties, to travel across Europe. My family's having a heart attack when I did that. So when I said, "Hey, I'm gonna go for two weeks," and I, I did, they're like, "Okay, well, you know, you've got some experience." And now that I said, "Hey, I'm going for a year," they're all like, "Be safe, call often, send us some postcards." Other varying reactions, but for the most part, you know, I eased them into this because mm-hmm. I've already been traveling and I've already told them how unhappy I was with my current life and situation and how everything, you know, just how the cookie had crumbled so far. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else. Let's see how their cookies are. Pretty good. Yeah, they're delicious over here. Delicious cookies. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, you can also ease them into it. Either way works fine. I think the more, more important part is to stick to your guns. Listen to their advice. But if you've done your research and you're sure of what it is you want, yeah. I don't see why you shouldn't follow it. Yeah, I do think that's the most important thing. Remember, too, and we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, that so often what we see of other places is the worst of those places. Mm-hmm. When you tell people, they're going to be worried because what they know about these other places is typically the worst those places have to offer. And they're not seeing all the good parts. They're not seeing how rare those poor circumstances are. Mm -hmm. Knowing your facts can be a great way to reassure family and friends. And also recognizing that while they might be worried, their worries aren't necessarily fully well-founded. Yeah, and they're not personal. They're not personal. No, they're they're concerned about what could happen to you. Not Mm -hmm. that you will be uh, dumb and reckless and, you know, purposely get into a van that says free can that's not what they're talking about you can die in a car accident at any country in the world yeah <laughs> any street in the world you can get hit by a bus crossing your own you know street yeah it happens life goes on and you can't let that fear stop you and so long as you have your facts and you've done the research and you i think the, doing the research part is the most yeah. important part and knowing what risks you're taking <laughs> Okay, so choosing a travel buddy or finding one on the go. (laughs) You can obviously solo travel. Mm -hmm. It's And I highly recommend it. It's fabulous. Yeah, and it's a great way to get to know yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can only spend so many hours driving down America's highways solo before you just have to get used to your own company. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, spending the month on my own, I didn't speak any of the languages of the countries I went to. And so I definitely got used to just not interacting with people in public even though i'm sure plenty of them spoke english i just felt bad for not being able to try in their language i think when you're looking for a travel buddy uh you should look for somebody who's flexible and who travels at least similar to the way that you do Mm -hmm. if your travel styles are too different then it's really easy to clash yeah Especially if it has to do with like planning versus going on the fly we both had to be a little bit flexible on that respect yeah and we recognize you know which of our strengths aid the other Mm -hmm. like i'm i love to plan ahead in means of transportation and uh like where we're gonna stay those things i look up ahead of time what we do when we're there i don't care she however she knows all the sites to see she knows the travel routes 
he knows the most important museums and like what aspects of the city that we're in, you know, why it's famous. She does a lot more of that research. On that note, though, I will say that it is important to remember that you can't see everything. Oh, no, you can't see everything. So pick your pick your favorites. Cause Which it, is the other reason why I like to do the research is so I can prioritize. Yeah. So yeah. that's important because there are times oh, on my trip, there are so many times people are like, oh, well, you were in Rome, so you must have seen this. And I was like, oh, no, I completely forgot about the Pantheon. Oh, next time. <laughs> yeah. Or sometimes it's like, I was there for two days. Yeah. <laughs> no, I did not make it to that side of the city. I spent a year living 40 minutes by train away from Berlin. And I had a train ticket that would let me go into Berlin as often as I wanted every month. And there are still things in Berlin that I haven't seen. And I've been back several times since then, too. Mm-hmm. It's a big city. And it has dozens and dozens of museums. And tons and tons of bars and nightclubs and restaurants. And, like, there's a park around every corner. It's true, and it's gorgeous. There's always something more to see. And I'm just, I'm never going to see it all. Mm -hmm. I could live here the rest of my life and not see it all. Mm -hmm. Heck, my relatives have lived here their entire lives, and they haven't seen it all. Sometimes I'm like, oh, hey, I went and did this thing today. And they look at me and they're like, you did what? (laughs) Where? What? Um, Also, if you're flexible and you are friendly, you can totally find a travel buddy on the go. Yeah. Yeah. I, during my USAC study abroad, I made friends with a few girls and we ended up traveling together on little trips outside of the USAC experience. Uh, Two of the girls and I went to Ireland together. And then after the USAC thing was over, one of the girls and I, we took a trip down through France and into Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, And those were the countries we wanted to go to. And so we got together and we're like, hey, travel buddy, (laughs) let's go. That's the other thing is you don't have to have, you know, one long-term travel buddy. If you're traveling for a long time, you can make friends within the places that you go and make shorter trips with those friends. Yeah. It doesn't have to be all or nothing like Karsh and I decided to do. Definitely. If you're in an area with a lot of expats in particular who often will jump around and travel a lot and be totally nomadic, if you find somebody that is heading towards the same place you are, you can go with them, you know, and have them be your travel buddy for the next couple months until you guys decide to part ways. And on that note, maintaining connections around the globe, which I honestly am terrible at. So this is going to be one of those do as I say, not as I do. It, and I think part of it's just like it's it's hard to keep track of everyone. Mm-hmm. Thank God for social media, though. That does help. Social media definitely helps. I think that it's a matter of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're never going to be able to keep track of every person you meet. When you think of somebody that you met, just reaching out and sending a message, I think that that can go a long way. Uh, And I think that it's important to remember that the kinds of connections that you make while traveling can run really deep. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of connection when you have met somebody who is also in the same situation you are where you're experiencing all new things and you're struggling against culture shock together and you're you're in the same boat and that can forge a really strong bond really quick so not being afraid to reach out after a long time and being authentic about it and keeping an open mind using your tools social media is a great tool yeah and remember that that road goes both ways so even if you haven't reached out to them in a while they haven't either because life gets busy I think it's hard to remember that. It helps me to, like, reach out to people because I'm like, their lives are just as busy and chaotic as mine. I don't blame them. I doubt that they'll blame me for not having reached out in a while. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you reach out, then, hey, you reached out. If you don't, then you're perpetuating it. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 
Okay, so diving into some of the more practical aspects. Documents. You need a passport unless you're planning on traveling within country, which you can do, obviously. And I absolutely should. Yes. Um, I, we're a little more focused on international travel here, but we encourage travel of all kinds mm -hmm. for your passport. You must apply in person for your first passport if you have lost your old passport or if your passport is more than 15 years old. They expire after 10 years. If an additional five years has, has passed since then, you have to apply for the next one in person. So when you do go to apply for your passport, there's some things you need, like evidence of citizenship, ID, um, a photo adhering to you know specific regulations, um, whatever they may be, please look them up on your own, um, and money for the fees that are associated with applying for your passport. And that is a, an official government ID of some kind. Yes. Yeah. Like a driver's license. Yeah, not, your college ID won't cut it. Sorry. Your renewals can be mailed in, but you must have your previous undamaged passport. And that's pretty simple. You just gather the things you need, stick them in an envelope, ship it off. The new one will show up and it depends on how um, backed up they are. Uh, it can be anywhere from like, I've heard of people getting them within a month, mm -hmm. um, but it can also take up to like three months. The pandemic really threw things you know, for a whirlwind. Um, one of my sisters, when she applied for her passport, I think she like she had to schedule an appointment to go in. Sorry, nothing like waiting to the last minute to get your passport because they had to book their flights. And she's like, oh, I need to get my passport. And we're all like, oh, you don't have that yet. But she got her passport very quickly because she made an appointment. She had everything ready to go, handed in. I think she got it within three weeks. She also be expedited. You which, can pay extra to yeah, get it faster. which is really helpful. For anyone in, from the United States, all of the information that you need for your passport is at travel.state.gov. The rest of you are going to have to come to yourself. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> not looking up all of them. Not looking up all of them. There's literally 195 countries recognized by the United Nations. Okay, visas. We're not going to go super deep in visas because, again, they are going to vary widely. Um... There are 142 countries that you can visit visa-free with a U.S. passport. However, the length of stay varies. So some of those places you can stay for three months. Some of them you can stay for two weeks. Some of you can stay for, you know, six months. It really depends. Do your research. Do your research. And don't just look it up, you know, briefly and say, oh, the first one I saw, you know, six people said it was two months. Check when that was updated. Yeah. Go onto that country's website and see what it says. Well, and again, travel.state.gov is a great website. They have a lot of that information there. Yeah, anytime you can go through the official government website and check, that is definitely the first place you should go. A lot more places have a digital nomad visa now, which is a really cool addition. Again, the requirements for that vary. Uh, a lot of times you have to prove that you're making a certain amount of money. It can, it can vary widely. Yeah. And, and there's so many visa options. So if you really want to stay somewhere for longer than the you know, visa-free U.S. options that you have, there are a lot of yeah. options. There are a lot of ways to go about it. Um, she and I did not particularly do that this route because that's not what we wanted. Well, and also it can be difficult if you aren't planning on working, studying, or in some way contributing to the community that you're going to be in. Most visas hinge on something along those lines. Which is why digital nomad visas are now becoming more common because typically a digital nomad isn't acquiring a job in country, isn't studying in country, um, and they wanted to accommodate that as well because you are still working and still able to spend money in the country and therefore contribute to their economy. But yeah, the long-term tourist thing, it can be mm -hmm. really difficult to find a visa that 
fix that. And since we were planning on taking a year just to travel, we figured it would be really, really difficult to find a, a visa that would allow us to do that. Uh, and it just seemed easier to skip all that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we did the more or less three months in each place route, mm-hmm. which is very typical. It's usually like a 90 days in, 90 days out situation. Except Albania, which as of right now, I believe it's six months. Yeah. You can stay in Albania visa-free, which is pretty cool. Very cool. Um, but again, that might change. Also, what you might require in terms of a visa can vary widely. Uh, some places require a simple online travel authorization which is really easy. You just go in to their website, plug in your information. They say, hey, cool, welcome in. And you just have to bring that with you when you travel. You might need an official embassy visa, which you have to apply for. Like we said, visas may not be required. Or you might get a visa on arrival, which is technically what a passport stamp is, where they authorize you to be there for however long. Mm -hmm. And so when they say like you don't need a visa to enter a country, what they really mean is that They'll stamp your passport when they get there, authorizing you to be there for the three or six or however many months you can be for free without an official visa. Yeah, without extra work on the outside. Uh, the last document we're going to talk about real quick is just an international driver's license. Is some places require, some places don't. It depends. Basically, the point of it is that your permit to drive and your authorization to drive has been translated into a number of languages so that it can be proven in whatever country you might be in. When we rented a car in Croatia and I went to go pick it up, I tried to show the guy my international driver's license and he was like, no, no, your driver's license is in English, which is one of the already approved languages, so you don't need that. And I was like, well, I paid for it, so I have it now. (laughs) Take it anyway. And I don't know if that's consistent across or if that was just a Croatia thing. Yeah, it's the only place we've we've been driving. I think the international driver's license can be convenient as an additional form of identification. It's handy to have in case you need it Mm -hmm. if you are planning on driving, but it's probably not necessary. Yeah, I haven't needed one. You had yours, and so that was fine. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have mine for any of my trip, but I also didn't drive at any point. But it is nice to have as a backup if you suspect you'll be in, a, say, a more remote town. You're like, oh, well, take public transportation. Well, don't always trust the public transportation in remote town. So, I mean, there are ways to go about it. But you just have to kind of, you know, assess the pros and cons. You know, how much it'll cost you one way or the other. Okay, diving into packing. Practicality versus fashion. I did terrible with this. And part of it is that I put packing off, but I ended up bringing all of these clothes that I thought, oh my gosh, this is so like, this is what I want to be like seen wearing in Europe. And none of it goes together. (laughs) and It's a mess. I will point out that she made fun of me for my very extensive list that I made because I started packing like four months in advance and everything was color coded. Like I went a little over the top, but she did make fun of me for it, and I have had no regrets with what I packed, for the most part. I have lots of regrets. And again, it's, it's difficult because we were so limited in what we could bring. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the problem, is that I brought a lot of, like, my favorite things. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I don't have anything to tie the things together to make practical outfits with. So I have some skirts that I really like with no tops that go with them. You know, I have some tops that I really like with no jacket that matches. Yeah, definitely the time where you want that capsule wardrobe. 
Mm. And not to say you can't bring some of your favorite items, but when you're doing, especially like we are for a year, where you're going to face different temperatures and different climates, we could only pack so many things for spring, summer, and you know, winter and fall because I'm not bringing seven or eight sweaters and I'm also not bringing seven or eight tank tops mm. because I can have about two or three of each before my luggage is full. Yeah. Uh, so I think that... And layers. This is layers. Yeah, and I, I think that this is another one that's going gonna, gonna to depend on where you're going to mm-hmm. because if you're heading somewhere where the temperatures are more consistent, closer to the equator, (laughs) then you could do more of the fashion aspect because you're going to be able to incorporate more items because you're really going to be planning for a narrow range of temperatures. Yeah. Warmer temperatures. (laughs) Or even if you're only going for one season, Mm -hmm. like if you were planning on spending three months in Berlin and it happened to be the winter season, you can pack all the sweaters you can possibly fit in your suitcase because you're not going to need tank tops. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, that, that, Depends for sure. And I think that a big part of it is neutral colors. Yeah. You can do more like fashion forward items if they're all in neutral colors that will go together anyway. I definitely think it needs to be a good balance between practicality and fashion because, well, certain, you know, clothing choices might be the most practical thing for long term use and wear. Mm -hmm. Are you going to want to use that every single day? Because you're going to get tired of looking at, I don't know, a ugly pair of boots that they're really sturdy but man every time you you know put them on you just look like you're going for like a backwoods hike and meanwhile you're in downtown milan yeah those shoes are really great for walking in but you kind of feel like you stand out in the wrong way and that's totally up to you as a person you decide whether or not you feel comfortable dressing how you do but bring a couple of options that some of them can be you know fashionable for those nice nights where you go to out to dinner, if you go out to a fancy restaurant, you don't want to be wearing your hiking boots. Maybe you bring some nice pretty flats that you mm-hmm. don't wear all the time, but when you do have the occasion, you're grateful to have them. Yeah, well, I think that, again, that depends so much on the situation, the person, the type of travel. Like, obviously, if you're doing a long-term hike, you aren't going to be bringing flats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it depends so much on where you are and what you're doing. And because even like great walking shoes don't necessarily have to be hiking boots. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I know my Toms are super comfortable to walk in because they're really well structured on the bottom and they're cushy. Um, so in the summer, pretty much all I wear because I could walk for miles in those things. However, in the rain, they suck. <laughs> suck (laughs) because they just soak right through instantly yeah that's the other thing about being prepared with like multiple types of clothes is that you might be in somewhere for one season and it's gonna be fairly similar but you can't predict every weather situation that's gonna occur in that area i think that's about accepting if you're going to the desert Mm -hmm. it might rain a couple of times but does that mean you need to bring rain boots so just because you know that like oh there's a chance that it might rain a couple of times if you're going for a long time, you might just want to accept that my shoes just might be wet a couple of days Yeah. during that, you know, three months period rather than take up space in your suitcase, bringing rain boots that you're only going to use a couple of times. Fair. And so I think that sometimes you just have to accept that, like, you know what, this is just something I'm going to suffer through <laughs> because I guess that is a good point, too. There are certain aspects of like fashion and packing and you know, you're just going to have to suffer through certain situations. Yeah. They may be. Because you, know, you can't less. be prepared for you everything. Can't. 
as far as just a very generalized statement, I'm just going with layers and, you know, having multiple options right. within reason. And you will thank yourself for leaving things at home and making your luggage lighter, especially if you're moving often. <laughs> mm. Mm. Also, as much as you might say this, because I definitely didn't intend on purchasing clothes while we were here, mostly because I had you know, really thought through everything I wanted to bring uh, as far as temperature changes and weather and fashion. I really did as much prep as I could. I have definitely bought clothes while we're here. Mm. Not a ton, but, I've, you know, I just, I just bought a sweater that I really love. And I now have, you know, one more thing to add to my suitcase. So if, you know, keep that in mind too. You might be fully strict on like, I don't want to buy anything. But then there's that shirt on the rack that you just can't resist. I think it's really hard to actually not buy anything. Yeah. Because also the chances that you're going to notice a gap in your wardrobe somewhere. Yeah. Because as much research as you do, you cannot be fully prepared. You can't know what the reality is going to be like. Um, plus things have been so unpredictable. I mean, worldwide mm -hmm. weather phenomenon lately have been insane. Yeah. And so you, you cannot be fully prepared. You are probably going to either have to buy something or find something that you just really, really want to treat yourself to. So plan on, you know, leaving space in your luggage for that. Also, think about what you can find there. Yes. I left a lot of my toiletries at home because I was like, I can buy them there. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be carting, you know, jugs of shampoo or whatever because, like, I can find that there i can there's there's shampoo in croatia i can buy shampoo there meanwhile <laughs> i definitely brought like certain bath and facial items that i was like i probably can find it in croatia or in germany or wherever well like if there's something specific that you really love i mean i i had um one more set of these shampoo and conditioner bars mm -hmm. that I really, really love. I love what they do to my hair. And so I did bring those because I had them. I, you know, I had them already. I knew I wouldn't be able to find those. And so I brought them with me. But anything that is fairly common or generic or um, that you know, you don't particularly care what brand it is, mm -hmm. you know, even things like socks, you don't need to bring an entire year's worth of socks because you can always buy a couple pairs of extra socks somewhere yeah so keeping that in mind as well that you can lighten your load if you are willing to buy things there as well and be prepared to some extent you know if you're moving a lot to leave things behind yeah not like you know you don't just leave half your luggage behind hair ties or you bought some shampoo you didn't use at all leave it yeah. You don't need to cart everything you buy around with you. Certain items that we've found that we've needed, like a knife, scissors, that for some reason just... They're consistently not there. Yeah. Don't or understand. the knives that there are are these teeny tiny little, like, I can't even call them steak knives. Like, it's a joke. But so... We're talking about like a kitchen cooking knife. Yeah, like a chef's way. knife. So we bought a couple of those. We bought some Tupperware, which again, it's odd that they don't have any way of storing leftover food. At least not that we've experienced. Yeah. So there are certain things that like that we've taken with measuring us. Cup. Measuring cups. Small things that will add to our convenience as yeah. we go that we've bought. However, we both recognize that when this is over, we're probably going to leave that knife and the scissors and the Tupperware behind. Like we're, we're not bringing those home. Yeah. We don't need them at home. But we've needed them thus far on the trip. And that's yeah. been very helpful. And on that note, 
The most important thing to remember to bring is money. Oh my God. Because uh, anything else that you forget or that you need, you can buy with money. <laughs> as long as that's something my mom taught me. Because uh, I used to stress out so much about packing. Mm-hmm. I used to be really, really bad about it. And at the end of the day, my mom would just be like, look, it really doesn't matter if you forgot your razor because we can buy one Yeah, if we have to. It really, really doesn't matter if you forgot to bring underwear because we can buy them yeah. if we have to. So at the end of the day, that is the most important thing you can bring because you can use money to replace whatever it is you might have forgotten. Yeah. And as hard as it can be to like replace something that was really you know necessary, especially if it's a bigger expense. If it's that important, you can just go buy it. it. Might suck, but you you can do it. And then my last point here was suitcase versus backpack. I feel like that's very much a you decision. I, I definitely think so. I think that I think it depends on how much moving you're planning on doing too. Mm. Because us relocating once every six weeks to three months, we can manage the suitcases yeah. that often. If you are changing cities every couple weeks. I would not want to be lugging our suitcases around that often. I would definitely have gone with a backpack instead. Yeah. I also think to that extent, it depends on how long your travel is in general. Mm-hmm. Like I moved every couple of days um, for a month and I had a carry-on and a small backpack. Your carry-on is minuscule though. And I am an expert packer because I lived out of that thing weeks. Very proud of that. <laughs> Only doing laundry twice. It was fantastic. This thing is like the size of the kitchen sink you guys it's It's very small and i'm very (laughs) proud of what i've been able to pack inside of that yeah (laughs) that was perfect for me i was moving a lot but i didn't want to be carrying everything around on my back i just think that's very much a personal choice yeah and for how long you're going for i think if i were to do three months of travel moving every two weeks probably the one big backpack as opposed to luggage but when you're moving every couple of days it can be nice to have something that rolls that was my preference, though. That's totally up to each individual. Yeah. And I've definitely, I've traveled with my backpacking backpack mm-hmm. before. I know it can be really, really handy because you're totally hands-free. That was one thing that I loved about that. But yeah, it also, it does feel very different than traveling with a suitcase. I definitely feel more like I'm scrapping my way <laughs> through whatever travel experience I'm in. Rather than I am this, you know, purposeful world traveler. It's like jet setter. Jet setter. Yeah. It does come with the stigma. Yeah. Like you, um, when we were in Croatia, especially, we saw a lot of people um, with backpacks. And well, neither of us would ever judge a person for that. You could see no. the people around them kind of giving them the side eye of like, whoa, you're traveling in a weird, different, unexpected way here. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of like would watch them more and like definitely had a lot more like looks. I don't know what their thoughts and judgments I don't know if it's were. unexpected because I, a lot of people backpack through Europe. I mean, I don't know what their judgments and expectations were. I just mean, like, I saw a lot more people watching people who had backpacks than I did people who had luggage. I think it's the, I think the stigma is that backpacking tends to be more young adults who are traveling on their last dime, mm-hmm. you know, it's or sometimes, life. yeah, sometimes even they stop to bus in order to get to the next country or whatever and so i think that the stigma is that they're a little bit more they're they're traveling for cheaper Mm -hmm. and they're a little more desperate for cash Mm -hmm. as opposed to i think the suitcase gives more of the like oh i'm traveling for business yeah or i'm oh i'm established on vacation yeah which is very much a you know outward appearances very much so yeah 
Um, it obviously, anybody can travel with a suitcase or a backpack. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that that's probably the stigma that there is there. Yeah. So just be aware that that has definitely been a thing that I've witnessed. And I think it depends on the location, too. Because anywhere, anywhere along El Camino, if mm-hmm. you see people with a backpack, they're just going to be like, hey, mad respect, man, because you're walking El yeah. Camino. Like, yeah, it definitely depends on where you, you are. Know, or the PCT. Like, you see the people coming off the PCT trail, and obviously they are wrecked. They're dirty. They're you know, injured there. Like they haven't seen a real bathroom in three days. Like <laughs> people are looking at those people going, Oh God, you took on quite the undertaking and I have mad respect for you. Mm-hmm. Can I drive you to the nearest hotel? Yeah. <laughs> and so it depends on where you are. All right. So next I want to talk about culture preparedness. Which is just, you know, being prepared for the culture they're going to. It's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> what it says on the tape. Yeah. <laughs> I think the big one here is language. Yeah. You can get away with a lot of stuff if you know how to say, like, the most basics. Hello. Thank you. Please. Do you speak English? Or whatever language you speak. Like, if you can, if you can get through that, most people are willing to help you. I've noticed even... It de- depending on uh, the difficulty of the language, too. Mm-hmm. Because I noticed in, like, Albania or even here, if I just say, like, Hvala, which is thank you in Croatian and Montenegrin, they're just, they're, they're happy with that. They're yeah. like, we, obviously, you're not going to learn our entire language, but you tried, and that is awesome. Yeah. So I think that that, the difficulty of the language and the place that you're going to depends as well, because... Mm-hmm. I mean, in France, they're famous for wanting you to try to learn French if you're going to go there. Which is funny because I've always had really good experiences whenever I've been in France that, you know, I could say the absolute basics. Hello, I'm sorry I don't speak French. Do you speak English? And people have been absolutely so sweet to me. They're like, I do speak English. Here, allow me to help you. Or even when they don't, they're like, no, I don't. But let me try and help you anyway, because you tried. Yeah. And I think that ultimately that's the thing that's most important to them, is that they feel like if you're going to come here, can you at least try? some effort. You don't have to be able to speak the entire language. But if you can just learn, s'il vous plaît, and merci, and bonjour. I always say, learn enough to be polite. Yeah. Learn enough to be polite. Or like Dave and Nancy mentioned to us, they said to learn how to say delicious. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Compliments are good to learn, too. <laughs> Compliments are good to learn. Yeah. Which, actually, I don't know how to say delicious in French. That'll be on the list. That's on the list. We need to learn how to do that. But on the other hand, if you're going for a longer period of time, you will definitely have a better experience if you try to learn the language. Mm-hmm. Something that really stood out to me on my exchange year was the more effort you put in ahead of time, the easier it'll be once you get there. And the Rotarians, you know, they tried to drill that home to us, but we were teenagers, you know, and we had, were in high school and hanging out with our friends and stuff. So not, we didn't want to spend, you know, an hour every day studying this language that we weren't even going to get graded on. So none of us studied. I mean, I think a couple of people did. Um, but I know most of us, when we got together and we talked, we were like, did you study? It's like, no. Did you? <laughs> a little. <laughs> but once you get there, it's like, if you haven't studied a lot, the little bit of study you've done just vanishes because you're in a whole new place, a whole new situation. Everything is new. Your brain is working over time and it just, like, if you did not really dedicate yourself to it, 
the little bits just disappear. They fly out the window. Like, you think, oh, I'm going to walk into the store and, or, you know, a cafe and ask for a cappuccino. And you practice it a hundred times in your head, and you say it 15 times on your way there, and you walk in, and you go, heh. Uh. Um. Cappuccino. Yeah. And then thumbs up, smile, and hope that, like, everything's okay. Because you may have practiced 50 times how to say one cappuccino, please. That yeah, should be simple. Except you're in a foreign country and everything's new and different. And you get nervous and it just whoosh, out your head. Again, your brain is working overtime on everything because it is all new. And so the things that are typically habit aren't habit anymore. You're surrounded by this new language as well. And your brain is constantly trying to process it and struggling to do so. Yeah. It gets really uh, difficult to remember and recall. Um, But the more effort you put in ahead of time, the easier it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And particularly if you're going to be in one place for a long time, the more you can connect with locals on a personal level, the better off you're going to be. And that's a lot easier to do when you know the language. I noticed on my exchange year that it wasn't until the last three months that I really started to feel like, hey... Like, this is my home. I have friends here. I, I'm really able to get to know these people. Even the friends that I had made earlier in the year, I was suddenly able to know them on a different level because I was able to have more personal conversations with them about deeper topics. It really struck me then that I wished I'd put in a lot more effort to the language ahead of time because I could have made those connections a lot sooner and it would have completely changed my year. Mm-hmm. And instead, I was only getting to know these people, right, as I was, like, going to have to leave them, mm-hmm. which was kind of a shame. So if you're going for a long, long time uh, to be in one place, I highly recommend that you really kick your own butt learning the language ahead of time. And we've got so many apps and resources now that it's possible. It is doable. Yeah. You just have to dedicate yourself to it. Yep. And it's so, so worth it. Uh, But on the other hand, if you're only going for a week to somewhere like Albania, do your best to be polite. That's... (laughs) Yeah. I even... The few days that I was in uh, Vlora, I told myself I was going to try to learn a couple words, but Albanian is insane. I don't know... I don't understand this language at all. And I tried to learn the word for thank you. Mm-hmm. And it's like 13 letters long and it's pronounced in the weirdest way. And I asked people several times to help me with it. And I just, I could never, I could not get it. Yeah. When we were in Duras, we, we asked, we're like, how do you say it? And they were so polite and they mm-hmm. tried and we'd be like, yeah, huh? What? <laughs> and so it just, at that point I was like, you know what? I'm literally only here for a week. Right. It's not worth it. Right. It's not worth it. I have other things to do with my time. And they know, too. They yeah. know that their language is extremely difficult, and they don't hold it against you. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, like, we're, you know, headed to France here in a few months, and we'll be spending a good chunk of time there. So we are both dedicating a good chunk of our day to practicing French. That also includes, you know, us practicing with each other now and again to, like, try and make that French usable so that when we are there, we have an easier time. Yeah, we're trying to use what we're learning on a day-to-day basis. You know, saying good morning or hello to each other, asking each other how we're doing. Like, today, (laughs) I said, I don't even remember what I said, but I said something in German and Nicole goes, how do you say that in French? And my, my first thought was, I have no idea how to say that in French. It, you know, my German is way further advanced than my French. But I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, okay, I can't say exactly that in French, 
but I can get kind of close. And so I managed to piece together something, and she was like, okay, I'll give you credit for that. Meanwhile, I didn't know what she said in either language. <laughs> and I was like, yep, yeah, that was well done. Well done. I was pretty proud of myself. I was proud of you, too. Because I totally thought, I can't, I can't do that. And then I took a second, and I figured it out, and I did it. Yeah, she did. It was so, great. I was probably wrong, I no but idea. I tried. <laughs> but you tried. That effort was there. Other elements of cultural preparedness is knowing things like how much is customary a tip. Mm-hmm. Because that does change everywhere you go. Because even in the EU, each country makes its own laws and regulations for workers. And therefore, you know, the, the tipping customs are going to be slightly different in each location because... The work standards are slightly different in each location, even though they're all more or less the same. Right. Um, and it's also, you know, a cultural thing of, like, whether it's expected or not. I know typically in hotels, like, for porters or room service, things like that, it's more expected than just out on the street or in a restaurant or something. But that's also going to be a case-by-case basis. So it's definitely important to do your research because in some countries, tipping is not okay. It's actually insulting. So... That's one thing you don't want to do is walk into a restaurant, enjoy their food, and be like, wow, you know, I really enjoyed that, and their service was great. Here's some extra money. But that's a massive insult to them. So be mindful of that because it might seem, you know, it's very well-intentioned. But the culture is so different. And if you didn't know to look that up ahead of time, that could be blindsiding for an American yeah, who's used to tipping 15 to 20%. I think it's so hard, too, because you it really gets drilled home in the States. You tip. It's just what you do. Yeah. And then, the like, the idea of not doing that, it feels so rude. I know. The <laughs> amount of times when we've been here, and I'm oh, you know, tip. And it's like, you round up to the next euro, and you're like, that feels like an insult to the waitress. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but that's a, like, to them. You're like, wow, you really enjoyed the service. You rounded up to the next euro. Dang. Yeah. They did a good job. Um, also, transportation or even just getting around the cities in some places, it, you know, anywhere is a crosswalk at any time. <laughs> and in some places, you are to wait. <laughs> and there's also things like in London, it is extremely rude if you block the whole escalator. You are supposed to stand on the right so that the left is free for people to walk up. Yeah. And if you don't do that, then all of the local Londoners are like, how rude can you be? <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that, like, the crosswalk thing, because I was with a group of people, uh, we were in Italy, and we were all on our way to go get gelato in the middle of the night. We were from all over the place, and you could tell who were, you know, who was from the countries where, like, they stopped and they waited for the light, and who was from France and Italy, mm-hmm. because they didn't even look. They just went. I mean, it was midnight, so in Rome, the traffic was pretty quiet, but there was no hesitation. Zero. They just walk straight across. You're like, oh! And it's very much in their culture. So if you're driving in those countries, they will step out in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> if you're walking in those countries, go when they go. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll be waiting for a long time on the sidewalk if you expect other people are going to stop. So it's different everywhere you go. I think the most important thing with that is to be really, really aware of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. Because you're not going to think of everything to look up. No. I mean, you can definitely look up some of this stuff. Um, You know, how people treat transportation or how to manage tipping or how people treat treat crosswalks. Those are all things that you can look up. Mm -hmm. However, there's always going to be something that you miss. There's always going to be something that you don't know to look up or that is just so obscure that it's not 
really written down on any of the main websites. So it's really important to be aware of your surroundings, pay attention to what's going on around you, and do what the locals do. Follow their lead. Yes, especially if you're doing the long-term travel because you're going to be in grocery stores purchasing food. And, you know, we've encountered a couple different ways where you're like, oh, well, when you leave, you have to show the receipt to a scanner. Mm-hmm. And if you're like, you know, most Americans, you just shove it in your back pocket or your purse, you don't think about it. And you're like, oh, in order to leave the store, I need that receipt. And so you have to stop and drop everything, dig it out. Yeah. Yeah. Or like in Italy, you're not supposed to touch the produce. Mm-hmm. You have to put on this like plastic glove first. Or sometimes there's an attendant that will touch the produce for you and they wear plastic gloves. But if you were to just go in there with your hands and like, start grabbing produce to put in your produce bag. Oh my. The Italians would be horrified. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never knew that before. I was lucky enough to hear it in a podcast <laughs> before yeah. it became a problem for us. So sometimes you come across those things by accident. Doing your research is important, but the most important thing is paying attention. Yeah, it's really key to just watch what other people do. You know, take your cue from them. All right. So life shift. You've made your decision. You're all prepared. Now you just got to execute and shift into a different stage of your life. And there's a lot of different ways of doing this. First off, dealing with your job. It's scary. Not, I mean, to if you were able to get a job that is fully remote, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. You guys are very lucky. But for those who, like me, quit their job in order to do this, Without a backup, remote job, settled, ready to go. <laughs> it's terrifying. And for me, I, you know, let my bosses know in advance because my job, you know, it would take a while to train and find new replacements. You, know, you do you about what, you'll know what your job needs. And if, you know, if you give them too much notice, they might fire you. So play it by ear. But yeah, quitting, um, making sure you get as much vacation time or cashing out all the extra stuffs that you've been saving up. Um, any healthcare things that gotta take care of now before you leave. Like I made sure to get like my eyes checked, my prescriptions upgraded, my teeth cleaned, all those things like in the last couple weeks before I left, just because I didn't know I'd have an opportunity again. So that was, you know, take advantage of what you can. And obviously quitting your job is probably the most likely thing that is going to have to happen for most people in order to take on a long-term travel experience. But there are other situations as well. I, there, there are jobs where you can incorporate travel into your situation. Mm-hmm. I think I talked earlier about travel nursing. Mm-hmm. So if you are a nurse, you can become a travel nurse and then be able to travel you know, as part of your job. I also know there are situations if you're a doctor, working with Doctors Without Borders is a great way to take on long-term travel assignments. Entering the Peace Corps. Is, that is probably a sort of job shift, but a lot of times they have assignments that are suited towards specific professions. So if you've worked as a teacher, you can teach in the Peace Corps. Um, if you've worked in construction, you can do construction in the Peace Corps. And they will try to find a situation for you that maximizes your skills. So you can kind of incorporate your work or your profession in a lot of those ways. And it's worth looking into putting it on hold. There are some jobs that offer sabbaticals of certain kinds, or if you've developed a great position within your company, it's possible that they're, they will want to keep you enough to be willing to say, yeah, we'll rehire you as soon as you get back. Yeah. Make some sort of contractual promise about that. So it's worth asking as well if you're in a stable situation within a company that you love and you know they love you. Or again, sabbaticals. I know professors typically every couple of years they'll get a sabbatical and that's a great opportunity to travel. 
I feel like it's, yeah, it's one of the three. Either you're remote, you've integrated your job into traveling, you've quit that job, or you're on some kind of long-term leave and sabbatical. What to do with all your stuff, because we all know we, we accumulate a lot of stuff. And even when you think, oh, I don't have much. And then you ever have to move and you realize just how many flipping boxes you have. And you're like, how did I accumulate all these knickknacks and small things? Now imagine doing that, except all your life has to be packed away and put somewhere. It's a hoot. There's options, obviously. You can store your things. You can sell your things. No, that's pretty much the only two options. You can store or you can sell. I definitely were kind of doing a bit of both. I had a bunch of stuff that I didn't really need, per se. And I sat with most of my stuff, is this worth what I would have to pay in order to store it? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those things was a, a no. And that depends on your options on your things. Well. Yeah. Because I was very, very lucky. My parents are very generous and they haven't done anything with my bedroom at home yet. <laughs> so I was able to just leave everything more or less as it was in my old room, my parents' house. So, hey, thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my sisters were phenomenal. And once I consolidated my things... They were great and let me keep my things in their storage shed. But I don't have any like large furniture or anything. So the things I was keeping in a storage unit until I was ready to leave, I had to comb through and decide what was worth keeping what wasn't so I can consolidate as much as possible to the absolute irreplaceable things or the, in my case, I have a really nice set of like cooking pots and I love to cook. And my sisters were like, why are you keeping these? I'm like, because I can't replace them. They're so nice. I don't know. I always have trouble with that because... I always feel like, why would I waste money buying the same thing at a later date? Right. <laughs> that just isn't financially... It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, of course, if you're going to do the, the long-term travel thing, sometimes that that is what's going to make more sense, especially if you don't have someone who's willing to store things for you or they can only store so much for you. Mm-hmm. And your other option is renting a U-Haul storage locker for yes. months on end. <laughs> Which is also not financially the best decision. But it depends on the size of the storage locker, I guess. Yeah, that's true. We were only doing this for a year as planned, you know, for now. Yeah. So I mean, we weren't sure when we set out. Yeah, but it was it was a, about a year, and we both kind of felt like, well, we can reevaluate in a year. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, kept the pans, because if in a year I decided, oh, I'm not going to need those ever in my life, okay, then I can sell them. But as of right now, I'd I'd like them, please. Fair enough. You know best in terms of your financial situation and your things. And I would get creative, too, with figuring out storage solutions as far as people in your life that might be willing to store things for you. Mm -hmm. Because it can't ever hurt to ask, right? Oh, yeah. Always ask. At least try. Actually, this is a really tangential sort of story, but... I went to a writer's conference once. It's it, it's the Las Vegas Writers Conference. The Henderson Writers Group puts it on, and all of the money at the auction stuff goes towards the writers group, and it's a good cause. So I put my name down for the silent auction on a few items, thinking that I was just going to like bump up the price a little bit to help oh them out. <laughs> and I won this massive painting. It was huge, guys. I mean, it was like maybe five feet by five feet. This thing is huge. I flew on you know, down to Las Vegas and I was flying back and I had no way of getting this thing home. But a friend of mine at the conference was like, oh, no worries. I'll hang on to it for you until you can like drive down and visit and come get it. And I was like, okay, awesome. 
He still has it. Oh my gosh. How long ago was this? That was like seven or eight years ago. I think it's just his page. I was going to say, it's his. After the first year, it's his. Um, But yeah. I had a friend do something similar, actually. Um, She and her boyfriend were moving into this teeny tiny little studio, and they did not have the room to store this great chair of theirs. And, you know, at the same time, I was moving into an apartment, needed a chair. It worked out for everyone. Until we lost contact, and like five years later, we still haven't talked to each other, so I had to sell this couch because I I was leaving the country. Miranda, sweetie, I'm sorry I did sell your chair, but you left it with me unattended for five years, so I apologize. In theory, it worked out great, but yeah. after a couple years, it becomes that person's if you don't come pick it up. So there's definitely some follow-through <laughs> required. There. Yeah, you gotta go get your stuff later. Yeah. Okay, our last point on the life shift section here is property which obviously neither of us had to deal with that yeah because we don't own property we have never owned property we hope to own property in the future but i do know um that there's you know some options here ultimately it comes down to either keep the property or don't but if you want to keep the property you don't want it to be empty you could have somebody come stay in it obviously you could look for a relative or a friend that you find trustworthy who would be able to take care of your property for you as well as possibly pay rent for living there, mm-hmm. like a cheap rent. Like they take care of it for you and in return pay like $200 a month for living there for right. utilities or whatever. Take So that way, you know, your property is taken care of and it's not costing you anything to keep it, which is a great situation if you can pull something like that off. There's also lots of house sitter websites and companies where you can make that kind of arrangement with a stranger, which I know sounds super scary and sketchy, but mo- the vast majority of these websites, they do background checks. They, you know, look into people. It's, it's not just any sketchy random human that comes and lives in your house. It's somebody that has been vet, And you can typically, like, contact them and make sure that you're comfortable with the situation first. And that is an option for if you want to keep your property and you want it to be taken care of and you're trying to eliminate expenses associated with keeping that property. I think the renting it out, like just in general thing, can be difficult Mm -hmm. because a lot of times renters expect some sort of property manager to be available for problems. Yeah. With like the house sitting Typically, that's not an expectation because the whole point is that the people who own the house aren't there right. and they're not available. Yeah. We don't, we're not experts on that part, unfortunately, but hey, maybe one day we will be and we'll have an episode on that. We will so update you later. Stay tuned. Last but not least, I know this one's getting kind of long, is PDA. She's so proud of this. Preemptive disaster aversion. Like, it's good and it makes sense, but she is so proud of it, you guys. <laughs> I'm so proud. Come on. That's clever. I'm That's clever. clever. It's also, it makes me giggle. <laughs> so, Murphy's Law. In my experience, everything that can go wrong most likely will not, but it doesn't hurt to be prepared because Shit something happens. is going to go wrong. Yeah. Something is going to go wrong. On that note, like, again, is do your research, be prepared. You want to make sure that you feel comfortable handling crises as they arise because they do arise. They do come up. And it doesn't matter how prepared you are. Things happen and they're outside your control, but you just have to know that you can handle it, whatever may come. That being said, the vast majority of crises that are going to happen is you get pickpocketed. You missed the last train. Yeah, it's not going to be, typically it's not going to be anything too extreme. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the people that I've talked to who have like horror stories, 
it was never, I was attacked. I don't, there was no, there wasn't violence that was right. the problem. It was, oh my God, I got pickpocketed. They got my phone and my wallet and my passport and I have nothing. Mm-hmm. And so now I have to figure out how to handle the situation. Yeah. Which is scary and stressful, but fixable. Fixable. Yes. Especially if you have notified your embassy or consulate that you're in country and when you show up out of the blue and are like, hey, my passport got stolen, they have a record that you're in country. It'll go a little more smoothly. Mm-hmm. Which, yes, the government is there to help you, at least in this case. You should definitely notify your embassy and consulate that you are in the country in case there is a natural disaster or a political disaster, anything where they're trying to evacuate Americans from the area. It's best if they know that you're there. And you also want to know where the nearest one is and its phone number. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly if you're staying in larger countries, like I know Brazil, China, a lot of those countries will have many consulates. The embassy is typically located in the capital city, and then consulates are located in other large cities that will enable easier facilitation of everything. Yeah. <laughs> and it's important to remember not to panic. Mm-hmm. But we were in Venice, and we went to an opera, and we're like, hey, you know, this opera is going to kind of run a little... A little late, and we're not staying in Venice. What is, what time is the last train out of Venice to where we are staying? Oh, ten o'clock. Okay, cool. And the play is expected to get out at uh, nine fifteen. All right, we sh- we should have time in theory. If anyone has ever been to Venice, uh, navigating those streets is not direct in any way, shape, or form. Navigating Venice in theory is a completely different practice than navigating it in reality. <laughs> Even when you have, like, we download the maps, you know, directions ahead of time to make sure we would have time to get there. We should have had 15 minutes to spare. We got so lost and turned around. It was a mess. And we didn't have time to figure it out. So we ran up to the nearest water taxi and said, hi, can you take us to the train station right now? And they're like, sure, 50 bucks, get in. We're like, sold, whatever. <laughs> At least we were going to get to the train. Yeah. Because, yeah, that 50 bucks, that sucks. That could have been a lot of gelato. But it would have cost a lot more to rent a hotel room last minute in Venice for the night. Or, God forbid, we sleep outside. And given that we were at the opera, we weren't exactly in, like, layers. No. We were not prepared for the We were in dresses and heels. It would not have been a good deal. So, yeah, we bit the bullet on that, and we got to our train in time. Barely, but we made it. And and like Nicole started out with was the not panicking. Because when we realized we weren't going to make it, we didn't panic. Nope. We both kept telling each other, look, whatever happens here, we're going to figure it out. It will be fine. You know, we, we figured out the solution that we were happiest with. Yeah. Because, yeah, we could have also decided, you know what, we're just going to stay here for the night. We're going to bite the bullet on that. It depends on, you know, what solution you're most comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Because I know some people, like, taking a water taxi when they haven't taken one before might be the uncomfortable choice. It depends. But being able to come up with different solutions and accept whatever that penalty or consequence might be um, because it did cost us an extra 50 euros. Yeah. You kind of have to accept when you're going into these long-term travel experiences or any travel experience, really, mm-hmm. that when crises arise, there's going to be some sort of payoff there. It's either going to be stress or time or money. It's going to cost you something. And you have to just accept that that's what's going to happen and not panic or freak out about it. Yeah, and I think it's best to go into every travel situation with the idea that some small part, somewhere along the line, 
is going to go wrong. And that's okay. Yeah. We, it's happened to us on every, you know, stage of this journey so far. Every, you know, something happens. It's everything's fine. We're still here. Yeah. We're enjoying this. It's lovely. We've had moments of stress. But we knew going into it that some part of this, you know, travel experience was going to have a, an issue or a breakdown along the way. Cooler heads prevail. You get through it. We're 50 bucks shy. But we made it back. Yeah. That's what matters. And honestly, when things go wrong, that's when you get the best stories. Yes. So. Uh, Carson's blog is full of them. They're fabulous. <laughs> she She's documented this thing so well. And you know what? I've read them all. And even though I lived it, like, reading it back, I'm having a hoot of a time. I'm like, oh, my God. Are they going to make it? Like, I know we made it. But she does <laughs> such a good job. It's fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just casual plug. Like, plugging in my blog there. <laughs> um, you can find that at CarsonCosta.com. Okay. Last couple things here. You want to have an emergency fund. An emergency fund is a good idea for literally everyone, but having some money set aside so that if everything else goes wrong, you at the very least have enough money to get yourself home, it's a good idea. Emergency fund is just a good idea for literally everyone. You never want to be in a situation where one small crisis is going to destroy you financially because that's not fun no. <laughs> at all for anybody. And that's a crisis you can't just calm your way through. <laughs> yeah. Emergency funds, I'm a big fan of them. Make sure you too. have one if you're traveling, especially long term, because things can go wrong. Like I said, you kind of have to accept that now and then you're just going to have to bite the bullet and pay something extra. And I would say about the emergency fund, especially in travel, assume that ticket home is going to cost as much as possible. Like, sure, there are t- I, there are options and times when you can, you know, buy a ticket from Rome to Reno for $400. Sure. Let's just assume that's not going to be your situation. Let's just assume it's going to be, for some reason, that $2,000 ticket. Mm. It's good to have that range to cover the most atrocious of travel expenses. Yeah. I think I mentioned this before, but I'm very into the personal finance and financial independence circles. And the rule of thumb there is six months of expenses, which is a lot. The recommendation is that you start with one month of expenses, work your way up. But yeah, the goal is to have six months of expenses set aside so that worst case scenario, if you lost your job tomorrow, you would have six months of no worries to find a new one. Yeah, that's good. Just advice for life. But yeah, specifically to travel. Like, yeah. Just, yeah, your ticket could cost who knows how much, but be prepared for it. And last but not least, insurance. It is an excellent idea to have insurance. In fact, in many places it is required. Uh, in many situations it's required. I got my sur- my insurance through Safety Wing. I'm very happy with it. I didn't get insurance, so don't, <laughs> you know. So do as we say, not as I do. However, I will say, so far, I've been fine. I don't recommend it, but I have been okay. Mm-hmm. Travel insurance is a good plan. Yeah. It's a good idea. No, it definitely is. Like, I definitely lost some sleep from not having it, but, you know, I'm also, uh, I'm okay. Just gonna muddle through. It's fine. Do your own research. Obviously, different um, policies and different companies are going to be suitable for different people. I liked Safety Wing because it covers a lot of different countries and a lot of different activities. So it gave me a lot of flexibility on that end, and it was pretty affordable. That's why I went with that one. But again, do your own research. I am not advertising for Safety Wing. Yeah, <laughs> although or Safe Wing, I think is what it's called. <laughs> However, if they want to sponsor us, you know. 
That would be cool. Be sweet. I would accept a sponsorship from Safewing. Yeah. Be sweet. I like their product. Or anyone else who'd like to sponsor, we'll take it. Well, well not anyone. Well, most people. I'm not going to advertise for something I don't like and use myself. Or agree with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's it for this episode. All right, neighbors. Thanks for joining us today. If you heard something you liked, please support the show by hitting the subscribe button and reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find takeaways from today's show in the show notes, and you can find more information about the podcast and show notes for each episode on carsoncosta.com forward slash podcast. Please send us your questions, comments, and suggestions. You can email us at nto at carsoncosta.com or find us on Facebook at NTO pod. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week to keep making your world a little smaller.